0: Coin.
1: You're listening to the Watchers of Westeros.
0: I am the King! A Game of Thrones podcast. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Fire cannot kill a
1: dragon. Lion doesn't concern himself with the opinions
0: of a sheep.
1: Also heard the phrase, Lannister always pays his debt. For the
0: night is dark and full of terror. What good is power if you cannot protect the ones you love?
1: We can avenge them. Well, hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Watchers of Westeros. You are in the right place if you are looking for some Game of Thrones talk. We're talking the first half of Season 2 this week as we ramp up towards the premiere of Season 5 this April. Uh, But first, introductions are in order. My name is Dominic, and joining me as he does each and every week is my good friend and co-host, Kieran. Kieran, how are you this week?
0: Good. Good. Afternoon. Well, good morning to you, Dominic, actually. At the time of recording this, Dominic is actually up at around 9am, and this makes a very nice change to how I'm usually up in the early hours of about (laughs) 1 or 2am in the morning whenever I'm guesting on the Star Wars Underworld podcast. So maybe it's a bit of payback time in terms of time zones here, (laughs) uh, listeners. But I am very much looking forward to recording in the afternoon for a nice change. But I am also looking forward to talking about these episodes, of course which I have to say we've got some great great episodes in the works as it's clear the the war of the five kings has commenced and and all of the different storylines are certainly becoming very compelling but yeah. how about you, Dominic? how How are you doing up uh, at this early hour?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was just thinking. I think this is probably the earliest I've ever recorded a podcast at, and I've recorded about a hundred episodes of, of various Star Wars podcasts. So I, I, I think this is about the earliest. Um, but you know, it, it is kind of, it is a bit strange. But it is also, I mean, it's. It's my, my, uh, my university's reading week. So it's, it's not a huge deal. I can, I can always go right back to bed after this. And I'm sure there's somebody listening to this who's like, I get up at six every morning and these little, these, these young, youngsters are complaining about, about having to be up at nine a.m. Oh. <laughs> Oh what I weep for the future <laughs> <laughs> but no uh, yeah i am looking forward to, to getting into these episodes and'cause there's a lot of a lot of interesting stuff and it's, it's a big shift from what we've been talking about in the first five episodes, specifically and you know who's alive and who isn't uh but before we before we get into the episodes let's uh let's take a a look back or listen back at uh, at at what happened in season season two. Episodes 1 through 5. Your father has named Lord Tyrion to serve as hand in his stead.
0: What do you know about warfare?
1: I know that our enemies hate each other almost as much as they hate us. We can't take King's Landing without ships. My father has ships. I'm his only living
0: son. You'll listen to me. You don't want Balan Greyjoy on an ally. I need his ships. He is not trustworthy. No man gives me a crown I will take my crown. Stannis the your sword awaits you. The Iron Throne is mine, by right. Are those girls, Roster's daughters. He don't like people messing with his daughters. He marries his daughters, and they give him more daughters. I wanted to give you something. Come to my mother. Keep it safe for me. Till I come back. We're looking for a boy named Gendry. <laughs> we'll be back. What did the goldclan talk you? No idea. Every night it's the same.
1: I'm running Run through, through the gods. Man. How are These are dreams. Nothing more.
0: My dreams are different. Mine are true. The fist of the first men. Thousands of years ago. The first men stood here.
1: They came here to get away from something. I don't think it worked. I will vouch for her, her people, and her dragons. Welcome to Carth, my lady. You're
0: going to kill Joffrey. The so gods give me strength. And then what? First we have to win the war. You're here to answer for your brother's latest treasons. <laughs> what
1: is the meaning of this?
0: She's to be your queen. Have you no regard for her honor? If Rob Stark was a pack with us, he should come himself. My son is fighting a war, not playing at one. I cannot defeat my brother in the field. You must give yourself to the Lord of Life. <laughs>
1: If wasn't a king, I wasn't a queen. Do you want to be a queen? I want to be the queen. All right. So there you have it. There's your uh, quick quick listen back at season two, episodes one to five. Kieran, do you have episode descriptions for us this week?
0: I do indeed, Dominic, and we'll kick off with the first episode of season two, entitled The North Remembers. Under the burning comet in the sky, war grips the continent of Westeros. In King's Landing, Tyrion Lannister arrives at court to serve as acting hand of the king and to reign in the stead of his crazed nephew, King Joffrey, as well as Queen Regent Cersei. At Dragonstone, Stannis Baratheon begins his quest to take the Iron Throne with the help of a mysterious foreign priestess. And on the eastern continent, Daenerys leads her people through the Red Waste Whilst beyond the wall, rangers led by Commander Mormont seek help from a dangerous wildling. Episode 2 is entitled The Nightlands in se- of Season 2. Stannis uses Sir Davos to seek out new allies for his war with the Lannisters. On the road north, Arya confines in Gendry. In the meantime, Robb Stark sends Fionn Greyjoy to win an alliance with his father and the fierce warriors of the Iron Islands. While Cersei and Tyrion clash on how to rule in King's Landing. Season 2, episode 3, is entitled What is Dead May Never Die. Catelyn Stark treats with King Renly in the hope of winning an alliance. Tyrion undertakes a complex plan in King's Landing to expose an enemy, and at Winterfell, Bran's dreams continue to trouble him. Season 2, episode 4, entitled Garden of Bones. Tyrion attempts to restrain Joffrey's cruelty. Catelyn attempts to broker a peace between Stannis and Renly whilst Daenerys and her followers arrive at the great city of Karf and hope to find refuge there. And in the meantime, Arya and Gendry arrive at Harrenhal, a great castle under Lannister occupation. And finally, the final episode we will consider in this podcast is the episode five entitled The Ghost of Harrenhal. Confusion rages in the Stormlands in the wake of a devastating revolt. Catelyn must flee with a new ally, whilst Littlefinger sees an opportunity in the chaos. Theon seeks to prove himself to his father in battle, whilst Arya receives a promise from the, from the enigmatic Yaqub Hagar. And the Night's Watch arrives at the Fist of the First Men, whilst Daenerys Targaryen receives a marriage proposal. So a lot, a lot has happened in those five episodes, Dominic.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting to c- kind of compare them to the first five episodes of season one, where, you know, there was a lot of talk, um, but there was wasn't really too much action. And in, in these episodes, a, a lot is going on. There's a, a lot of you know big scenes of of, of confrontation, although. You know, compared to what's to come, it's it's still not it's still nothing compared to compared to what's to come. Um, so let's just start with our with our overall impressions of, of these five episodes. Why, why don't you go first?
0: Yeah, these five episodes really see the stakes rise. I mean, we this is the War of the Five Kings. It's got that title, and it is rightfully bestowed as the as the label for this conflict, really, as as the as the title. And we've got these five claimants to the throne here. We've got Joffrey Baratheon, Stannis Baratheon, Renly Baratheon, Rob Stark, and Daenerys Targaryen. And we really do see their storylines expand. But also, what I think is very compelling about this is that through these five claimants, we are able to actually explore... Um, a multiple number of different characters who are all subordinate to these claimants. For example, with Robert Stark's story, we then begin to explore theon the House of the Greyjoys. Really, as he seeks mm-hmm. their help and their alliance, and we and we travel to Pike, the Iron Islands, and we and we discover. Who Baelon Greyjoy is, who 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 basically Fionn Greyjoy's relatives are, and we learn more about his character. And I think that's what's compelling about this: is that whilst yes, we've got this gigantic, this titanic clash between these five claimants to the throne, there is so much more character development which is occurring throughout this series. Who are from based upon individuals who aren't in fact these five claimants or usurpers but are in fact these incidental characters, and, and we keep, we're beginning to flesh out their storylines, whether it's uh Jorah Mormont, whether it's the Tyrells as well, um, and we've also got Sedavos Davos and the Lord of Light. There are so many different elements now that we're actually beginning to investigate and and, and survey in this series, and it's really becoming fascinating to consider. But Dominic, over to you. What, what were your standout initial impressions of these five episodes
1: yeah i i really i really enjoyed these as well i i like what you're saying there about how we get to see a lot more of the uh of the supporting characters really because i mean you look at look at rob stark's story he's barely in these episodes he's he's in the first one he's in the in the fourth one a bit third or fourth I, i can't remember um but um Theon is, is really sort of takes the, takes the main stage with the, with that whole storyline with what's going on with the, the king in the north because he's, well, he's off betraying him. And, and, uh, you know, in, in King's Landing, we're really, you know, Joffrey's there and we see how, you know, we, we get more evidence of, of how horrible a king he is, really how horrible a person he is but really we're more f- focusing in on the relationship between Cersei and Tyrion which is very, which is a fascinating one because they they they're relatives and you you almost wonder if there's some kind of begrudging respect between the two of them but they also clearly don't like each other you know that Tyrion doesn't trust Cersei and Cersei hates Tyrion for 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 well basically for being born and and the fact that their mother died uh in childbirth with them and, and so you get into a lot of interesting things like that and and we'll get into some of those as we continue in this episode, but I want to start off um just kind of talking about the the overall some of the some of the changes in these episodes compared to, to last season and first off, you know i I don't know about you when I first watched season two, the first couple of episodes kind of felt strange because the main characters are are all dead <laughs> you know Ned is gone, Robert is gone. Did you have that same feeling of of like hold on i mean? Yeah, it's game game of thrones but where's the main character what what's what's why are how is the story still going on i mean you know should shouldn't ned be around did Did you have that same feeling
0: i oh, absolutely i think the tone of season two really shifts that's the that's the fitting word that you've used there dominic it, it shifts in tone from season one you think about that opening scene in in the North from Embers episode, and we're at King's Landing, and we've got the Hound fighting those knights, mm-hmm. and then you just see really the exemplification of Joffrey's reign there—the cruelty that he bestows upon Ser Davos um, as he's, he arrives late for the battle, and he's, he blames it on the fact that he had a couple to drink before before the fight, and as as a result. Joffrey finds it within himself, or believes that he is justified, then to pour an entire barrel down his throat—a barrel of wine. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and this is this is during his uh the the, the king's ma- main name, name well, day maiden day main day. That's that's the word I was looking <laughs> for. It's basically his day. birthday. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And and as you said, this is completely contrasting to when you see Robert Baratheon arriving at Winterfell with his entourage and company, mm-hmm. um, and you can see that it's all, it's all noble respectful whereas joffrey seems to have really twisted it and, and it's become this really uh disdainful ceremony hasn't it really yeah. that he's able just to seemingly do whatever he's like do whatever he likes and he's really testing the limitations of his power does he have any limitations and in this scene you could argue that it's showcased he doesn't mm-hmm. and it, even if it's even if it's uh, seemingly so, that he, or rather he should have these limitations, <laughs> he's ignoring them, he's yeah. waving them, he doesn't care, he's the king, he has the power. And as you said, I think that shift really in the tone is the main difference from what I can see in uh, season one. And in particular, looking at the climax of that first episode, which was incredibly incredibly graphic wasn't it when you see the 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 bastard sons of Robert Baratheon being assassinated and and wide ranging from from females to babies it's just brutal and and quite quite traumatic to watch really isn't it and I think that as you said that's not what we saw in season one we saw a friendly the benign relationship between Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon in this one, we don't see that at all. We can see that there's a war going on here and the stakes have been raised and we just see this brutal, horrible, vicious, sadistic king. But okay. what, did, what did you... make? Obviously, you said there was a shift in the tone here. What what was it about, or rather, the, the shift or contrast to season one? What was it in particular that you thought was different from well, season one to season two?
1: Well, yeah, I, I think you hit on it there is, is the fact that we don't have Ned and Robert's friendship keeping things together. And... They kind of they kind of acknowledge as much on the show when when Renly tells tells Catelyn when they're you know, they're negotiating their their sort of peace their treat their treaty or alliance between between Renly and Rob you know she says that, or he says that you know, Ned and Robert's friendship kept the kingdoms together and we really see that and with both of them being dead all of a sudden we're we're looking at this show that one feels different just in the sense that we don't have our main character anymore. But there's also this whole there's this kind of power vacuum, or there's this there's the sense that nobody is really connecting with anybody else. There's no conversation that is happening between the various uh, warring camps. I mean, you look at the conversation that happens. The only one that's even remotely civil is the is Lady Catelyn and, and Renly. Um, but you look at Renly and Stannis; they're they're at each other's throats the whole time. Uh, Joffrey and, and Cersei, and, and everyone in King's Landing, won't even consider the uh the north's offer and you know rob is kind of off there off on his own doing his own thing fighting against tywin Lannister, and there is like like you said there's no i it almost feels like what was kind of the heart of the show is gone and i don't mean that in a bad way i don't mean that like oh now the show is bad obviously not we're doing a podcast about it but it sort of feels feels a lot darker and some of the 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 good that was there in season one the the, the people you thought you could believe in well they're all gone and all of a sudden you're left with a bunch of people that well you don't really know and you have to decide if you can trust them and you know I, I, you know people and the ones that you can't you think you can trust you know rob and and renly well they start to slowly be killed off over the next over the next little while starting with renly in these episodes with that crazy demon stannis baby thing that that uh that, that the lady Melisandre has, and it's it's very interesting. It's very interesting in that sense that they were able to to pull this off on that sh- on a show like that, because you would you'd think that you know you watch season one, and it's also very interesting to go back and watch season one and notice how different it is from you know seasons two, three, four, five, and so on, because you you go back and all of a sudden there's Ned there, and then everything feels a lot more hopeful than it does in in the later seasons.
0: Absolutely, I think if, as you said, it it feels. As though there's a lot more optimism surrounding Westeros and 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 where it could go if the friendship of Robin and Ned was to survive, and you hit it on the, on the nail on the head there, Dominic, in the sense that one, it was as though the the heart or the genesis really of of Westeros was removed, mm-hmm. um, and as a result, chaos really ensues, and and that's exactly why there's all this turmoil surrounding uh, the war, you know, the War of the Five Kings. Everyone's on well, their prime objective really is to take lands, take territories, take titles. People are sensing an opportunity here, um, and I don't want to use a pun, but it is you know cutting off the head of the state, uh, <laughs> but also cutting off the oh, head, you know, cutting off the head of Ned and and Rob's friendship. Really, that's what you're doing. You're cutting their friendship out, um, and then you're, you're left really with people just buying for that for that seat of power, and you can really see how. Also, that's been facilitated, the, the, the fact that these people have these different claims by the fact that there is this horrible and sadistic ruler on the Iron Throne and people don't really want to see him there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got a benign, loved king, beloved king, then maybe these claimants would deter. They would, they would be subjugated quite easily, but we haven't got that. Yeah. So I think, as you said, it's uh, the friendship of Ned and, and Rob is missing and you can see what happens when they're... Well, after their after their demise, really.
1: Yeah, and even just the the honor of, of of Ned is is kind of missing. I mean, you get that a little bit with uh, w- with Rob, but uh, not with. But you know, like we said, Rob is barely in these couple episodes there, so you're kind of lacking in the honor department. And w- the thing about Robert is, you know, he may have been a, a dr- drunken oaf at times, but he was able to to keep the kingdoms together. He was. I guess you could probably say he was a good king. He was probably not a great king. He was killed by a boar because he was drunk. So, you know, keep that in mind. But he was able to keep keep the peace after, you know, after a couple of rebellions in, in, in his time. And so to see to, with both of them gone, yeah, like we said, it, it, it does kind of leave this, this vacuum or this mm-hmm. this just something missing and it's replaced by chaos.
0: Definitely I would say he is diplomatically shrewd was ro- yeah, ro- yeah. Robert Raffian.
1: That's a good way to put it. Yeah, he he understood, you know, what it took to to rule whereas Joffrey clearly doesn't. And, and well we'll get into the the Joffrey Cersei Tyrion relationship in a minute because I think that's really interesting. Um but the other the other thing that kind of changes in tone in these episodes is we really start to see the the increase in the use of magic. And, and mythical beings in these episodes you know we see there's there's dragons there's that there's that bizarre demon baby um and then of course we were first introduced to wildfire and and I'm curious on, on your take on on the, that sort of shift of all of a sudden we're starting to we're slowly kind of moving away from the very real world quote unquote sort of politics of of King's landing and and the seven kingdoms and we're starting to get into some of the more fantastical elements of Westeros. And I'm curious on your take on that. Do you do you prefer getting into the more fantastical elements or would you rather stick to some of the more hard politics and uh, realistic, quote-unquote, uh, medieval warfare? Or, or do you feel they, they found a good mix?
0: I... Definitely agree with the latter statement. I think there was a good mix between, yeah. as you said, the fantastical, mythical elements compared to the political intrigues that have been witnessed in King's Landing and across Westeros, really. Mm-hmm. And I think what's what's so good about the way that they actually implemented the use of magics is that it wasn't thrown straight in our faces mm-hmm. right at the beginning of the series. And I think that although we saw the White Walkers... It that, that wasn't the focus, that wasn't the emphasis in the first season, it was really just establishing the political scene the political scenario and situation where we were, what is Westeros what, who were these people, who were the houses what were the five uh, who were the seven uh, kingdoms who was leading the seven kingdoms and I think that was what was so fascinating in the first season but what I do like is that there's this gradual introduction of these new elements and really the characters are following a similar trajectory to the audience with mm-hmm. regards to this perception of magic as though they're, they're quite uh, most of them i would say are in disbelief and incredulous to the fact that this actually exists the idea of dragons the idea of this lord of light i mean mm-hmm. a lot of them think it's quite uh, it's just been really invented and it's just this mythical element that used to exist thousands of years ago but has since deceased but the difference now, I would say, is that as we're gradually being introduced to these elements, uh, the characters are starting to be introduced to it. And, and that's when, as you said, talking about shifts there, the shift of the magical element, whether it was the ghost uh, that we saw emerge from Melisandra's womb or whether it was the dragons that we see really begin to to grow and to, and to uh, you know, start breathing fire... I think that the way that it's been executed was was nearly perfect, really. But As you said, I like the idea of this mixture between the political scene and the magical elements. But I'd be interested to hear what your take was on that. Do you have a different perspective on the use of magic in the series?
1: No, I, I agree with, with what you said there, that it... You know they did a really good job of introducing them gradually, and I think that's the smart way to do things, especially when you want to build up a, a popular show like this. I mean, um, you know, obviously, Song of Ice and Fire, the books, were very popular in the the fantasy community for for years and years before the show ever showed up on HBO. And but, you know, I, I, we can tell from just the popularity of the show that there are more people. Uh, that are not necessarily just into fantasy that kind of stuff in general but are into this show i mean i can think of you know people i know my some some relatives that i know that have like have maybe have never even seen star wars are into this show <laughs> and it's like okay well that that's great and i think that what they did was was really smart like you said they they didn't go all in right away and i think that's you know that goes back to to george R, R. martin when he wrote the books is that he he put everything in slowly and gradually you know that there's talk of of these things and they're mentioned but nobody really believes in them i mean you know when when danny steps into the fire at the end of season one nobody expects her to, to come out i mean jorah certainly doesn't you don't really uh, you don't really think any of the the dothraki or the people watching expect her to, to step out alive with a, with three dragons um but then she does, and that's sort of, that really is more the moment where things start to shift. And then we sort of get into some of the, some things like wildfire and, and, and we start seeing, like you said, the, uh, the ghost, the, the ghost that, uh, that kills Renly. And, and yeah, it, it, all of a sudden, it's slowly, gradually getting into these things where now when we get into the later seasons, you can have massive dragons flying around, or even at the end of this season, you can have just tons and tons of wildfire being thrown uh, at the, uh, at the at Stanis's fleet and people will buy into that because they spent the first season you know really getting into the characters and once you get into the characters I think it doesn't really matter what they're doing as long as they're doing something interesting and you can definitely say, say they they're they're doing something interesting and and because of the way the world was built up it does almost kind of feel it doesn't feel too out of the ordinary you know as soon as you've seen someone step out of a of, of a fire basically mm. unburnt Um, with three dragons, well, wildfire isn't that much of a, of a stretch anymore. And, and I think that, yeah, it, it worked well and there's a good mix, you know, we're not spending all of our time riding around on dragons. We're still spending most of our time talking about the political, uh, political goings on in King's Landing. I think that's, I think that's, that was the smart way to do things. And I think they pulled off very well. But speaking of King's Landing, I want to get into this because this is really interesting in these episodes. There's this kind of bizarre trifecta of people who seem to have power in King's Landing, but you can never really quite tell who has the most power. And that's uh, Joffrey, Cersei, and Tyrion. And we know when, when Tywin shows up next season, or really at the end of this season, um, he's the one with the power. He is the most powerful man in Westeros. He can, he's the only person who can kind of control Joffrey. Uh, but we see in, in these episodes, we see Cersei and Tyrion really trying to, and they have a certain amount of success. And so, you know, you kind of wonder who really holds the power in, in King's Landing. I mean, what do you think? Is it, is it just Joffrey and he's just kind of letting Tyrion and Cersei get away with things, or do they have some small amount of control over him? Because we do see, you know, Cersei is able to, to slap a little bit of sense into joffrey briefly and and Tyrion comes in and is able to save sansa from his his wrath um but at the same time you know joffrey is still still he torments those those prostitutes uh that that Tyrion buys for him and he well you know he has all those all those children killed so who who do you think holds the real power in king's landing at this point
0: It's really, really difficult to call, but I would say at this stage it's between Joffrey and Tyrion, really. There's certainly those two main protagonists, I would say, who are fighting Mm. for the power in King's Landing because I think the the scene that you refer to when Xerxes slaps Joffrey in the face, I think that marks the end Mm. of her attempts to manipulate him or at least in her mind she recognises that I can't. I can't control him. She couldn't control him last season when he decided to kill Ned Stark, and now he says that what you know, slapping me in the face is accountable to death. And yeah. if you do it again, I won't be as lenient in my, you know, in, 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 in my punishment, as it were. He will. He will effectively execute her. And when you've been given a threat like that, then clearly Cersei knows that power is. Is not within her grasp, and it's interesting to see the intrigue between Tyrion and, and Joffrey. As you said, Tyrion is desperately attempting to really get a hold of what's happening in King's Landing. As he mm-hmm. he steadily uh, he, he steadily climbs that power ladder, really doesn't he? You start off with him coming in in the first episode, and he sits in the the small council. He managed uh, and, and manages really to enact. Most of his will, really. Yeah. By the, by episode five, you've got Pycelle was in chains and was locked <laughs> up. So they found out the rat in the in the small yeah. council who had betrayed Ned Stark. And you've all and, and the and the mad uh, sorry and John Arryn. You've also got Lancel Lannister within his control as well, as he's now spying on Cersei and and Tyrion has has tasked him to dis- divulge every secret, any information or intel that is useful and valuable to him. And as you said, he manages to to curb Joffrey uh, from actually doing anything worse to Sansa, um, which was looking pretty bad at one stage, yeah. particularly in that throne room scene, which was, again, equally as graphic when uh, Sansa's clothes were really ripped from her. And she but, was being beaten up too, beat, beaten up exactly by uh, Lord Merrin, Sir yeah. Merin. But I think that I think, yeah, I'd say ultimately it would be Tyrion. And when I list down those those reasons, and although Joffrey did kill those prostitutes, I think it was more as a message to Tyrion to yeah. tell him that, you know, again, this you you cannot try to treat me as a child anymore. I am the king. But whilst, he, as I said at the beginning, he seems to not uh, comprehend or at least actually acknowledge any limitations that surely would be on his power, he thinks that he you know, he's power-hungry. Yeah. Um, well, there's but that... Ultimately, but ultimately, he is being contained and checked by Tyrion. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe you have a different interpretation to that. That's, that's my feeling, at least. Well, yeah. Well, these I was... first five episodes, at <laughs> least.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, there's that great line, and, and this was going to be one of my quotes, and, and I don't know if I'm stealing it from you, but uh, when 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 jo- when Tyrion enters the the throne room, there. And Joffrey says the king can do it as he likes, and, and Tyrion says, "You know, the Mad King did as he liked." Has your uncle Jamie ever told you what happened to him? Which is like, which is a great Tyrion line. It's one of my, my favorite favorite Tyrion lines. Um, but yeah, I think the uh, I think you've, you've kind of uh, hit the nail on the head there. I think do think Tyrion, although uh, not, clearly he doesn't have as much power as Tywin does when he shows up, he still is is seems to be the one that is in the most control. And the only place that I, I really see Cersei having some control over Joffrey is the fact that she is keeping Sansa alive. You know, Sansa is, you mm-hmm. know, as we see, she's being tormented. Very true. Joffrey is pointing the crossbow at her. And really, you can tell that Joffrey would really prefer to kill her and, you know, do what he did to Ned Stark, basically. Send another message to the North because he doesn't really understand how to how to fight a war. And the other thing is I also wonder if maybe Cersei realizes, like you said, that, you know, once she slapped Joffrey, that was sort of the end of her being able to manip- manipulate him. I almost wonder if she tried to then go after Tyrion and try and manipulate Tyrion to a certain, certain extent. And, you know, there's not too much, uh, too much evidence to go on that. But there are, they do have lots of conversations together where they are kind of at each other's throat and sort of they're simultaneously thinking about what's best. best but they're also seem to be they both seem to be kind of plotting to overthrow the other one. And I thought that was that was a really interesting sort of uh relationship as well. Um but with with Cersei when Tyrion has his plan to send Marcella off to uh to just live with the Martells, you get this uh you get this interesting scene where Cersei is just furious with Tyrion. Is this is this another instance of her kind of losing her uh, her power like she feels she's out of power or is it really can you know she mentions you know she won't let her daughter be sent away to to the Martells the way she was sent away to robert baratheon is this sort of cersei's experience coming out and we're sort of seeing her you know the ghosts of her past and she doesn't want to see that repeated for her daughter
0: yeah it's 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 the common theme in overriding um, I guess affectionate quality of Cersei is the fact that she she desires to protect her children. Her children, to, the children to Cersei, are everything to her, and she doesn't want to see them depart. Um, as, as she says, you know, she won't. She doesn't want to let Marcella be cast away like a slave to mm-hmm. you know, the Martells, who we've already we will we, later see in season four despise the Lannisters. Yeah. And, <laughs> And yet Tyrion's trying to say this is the safest place for her. So from Cersei's perspective, you can certainly understand why she's so upset. And as you said, it's just really this outcry, this outburst that takes place in her chambers there. She just can't believe what Tyrion's doing. It's incredulous to her. And mm-hmm. and she's taken away everything, as you said. It's just a combination, really, of the fact that um, her son Joffrey, she can't control him. She, in a way, she feels like she's losing her son. Um, yeah. You know, the fact that, she, that they're so distant from one another, and then she's got now uh, Marcella's going to be leaving. She's only really got Tomlin left now, and, and yeah. she said she loves Tyrion. <laughs> Jamie's captured. She's everything around her is just suddenly falling apart. Um, and you really can see, I think, in season two, this is probably the weakest you can see Cersei, or at least emotionally. Um, she, she, you just see her becoming just absolutely, um, just just really incredulous about everything that's going on around her, and, and, and the continuous outbursts, the attempts to try and clutch really on straws as, as she as she tries to gain back some of her power, which has clearly been lost at this point. And I think that ultimately losing her children and losing Marcella is just another indicator, and then and then another another reason as to why cersei would be so uh upset and and as i said it's really a culmination of everything around her is suddenly exploding and she just can't she just can't control her emotions in that scene there which you as you said, you can comprehend. Yeah. But what, what did you make of the whole yeah. scene in, in that particular instance?
1: I think there are some interesting comparisons that can be made to Cersei and, and, and Daenerys at this point in the story because both of them are sort of finding themselves without the power that they had because of who they were married to. You know, Drogo and, and Robert are now dead and so they're kind of stuck, you know, kind of having power but not having the same amount of power. And... You see that with with Cersei, I mean she, you know, she was the most powerful person next to Robert for the longest time. You know, everybody feared her. And then Joffrey took power and she thought, you know, this is her chance to really be the most powerful powerful person. She can rule through Joffrey. And all of a sudden she's losing him and you get that at that point you sort of realize she almost you almost wonder if she feels like a failure because her drive was for power, her entire life that that's what she wanted that's why she she married robert baratheon and you kind of get the sense that this brought her nothing but pain i mean she was trapped in this kind of loveless marriage with her with her with with uh with robert with this husband who who was still in love with somebody else and so she kind of became sort of this like evil queen basically because of that and she she her one saving grace were her children and all of a sudden, she realizes she has this horrible little sadistic monster as a child who is now king, and not letting her c- control him, and so she can't have that power. And all of a sudden, she feels like she's losing the power to even control what happens to her other children, with with Marcella being sent away, and she almost you almost wonder if she's trying to save Marcella from sort of having that same life of desiring power and realizing that she could never have it. And and it's interesting in that sense because Cersei is. is is, is strange? is, it's kind of, she's almost like a, a bit of a kind of sort of feminist in, in the Westeros world. I mean, she's, she is, and she isn't in certain ways. Um, but in, in a lot of ways she is because she realizes she wants, she can never have power. Well, she, she's trying to get, so she can have power, um, even in, while being a woman. And we see that, you know, she tries to convince Tywin of that later on in, in the series, and you know in these scenes you know we're seeing her doubt and that she realizes she can't have this power because of the way the society is set up and as a result uh you know her her daughter's being sent away and she feels like she's losing any control she ever had and and you know it's you know it's it's, it's hard at times to feel sorry for for Cersei Lannister but this is one of those times you, you almost kind of have to that you know, she, you almost realize, in a, in a weird sort of way, her her life is kind of falling apart. Even though she is still queen regent of Westeros, mm-hmm. which is nothing to be to sneer at either. You know, so it's it's, no, it's interesting. I think, in I think within
0: her personality, Cersei, as you said, really she's this strong, feminine character mm-hmm. in a world where females are predominantly prostitutes or their handmaidens. Yeah. It means that she is certainly one who stands out from the crowd and and you as you said you really do become very sympathetic to her although she seemingly uh, so cruel and 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 horrible to Tyrion through her, through her rhetoric but ultimately as you said she wants to safeguard and protect her children from the horrible outside world
1: yeah and you see that she is sort of she has her eye on the throne she is one that she wants to 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 have all that power and she's realizing in these in these episodes that she can't have that power, and even the way she thought she might be able to have that power she might she thought she might be able to you know beat the system um by you know putting her son on the throne and ultimately you know ruling through him uh isn't going to work and yeah shes she is a she's a weirdly sympathetic character in these scenes even though she is still uh you know a horrible person. <laughs> so it, it it's interesting to look at her that way, but let's let's talk a little bit more about Tyrion because he, you know, he tells Varys, you know, he knows how to play the game um and you know he's not ned stark and and it, it's true i mean we see him playing the game in the way that, that ned never did i mean ned tried to you know work and be honest with everybody and in these episodes we see tyrion basically lie to all the other members of the small council so that he can uh so that he can figure out who the who the rat is you know he's he's firing people left and right um because he doesn't trust them which you know ned would never do i mean ned trusted everybody um, which was ultimately his downfall. So, uh, what makes Tyrion sort of more fit for the role of the Hand of the King? I mean, you would think that the honorable honorable man would be the the right right fit for the the Hand of the King, but we see that it's not actually that the case.
0: Oh, absolutely not. And that's because King's Landing is is a dangerous place, which is full of political intrigue, political backstabbing, and you can't trust anyone really. Mm-hmm. And I think that's. What Tyrion brings to the fore, foreground, really, the fact that he is this wise and shrewd individual, really. He's, he's very aware and intuitive of everything that's going on around him in this political arena, and he's just trying to do his best to really stave off any opposition, but also to form al- uh, forge alliances, and you can see that really Lord Varys and Tyrion become very close in this season, and they're very like minded individuals. Mm-hmm. And and he's getting rid of, and as I said, well, he's trying to get rid of the opposition and the members of the opposition, such as the Pious Cells of this world, and uh, and to bring Lancel Lannister yep. <laughs> uh, under heel. Um, and I think he's just trying his best to really. Yeah, we were in a chess game here, and just put all the pawns in the right place because he knows that the king. He beat, by by episode five, he recognises the king is a lost cause. So it's really up to me and whoever I can find to trust the smartest, the wisest people. I need I need to get them on my side so I can stave off the attack from Stannis. Because throughout the season as well, you have to. Uh, remember that there's this overriding fear and trepidation at the fact that King's Landing is going to be invaded. There's this massive assault that's going to be launched by Stannis Baratheon and or, or, or and Rob Stark and however many other usurpers to the throne. But Stannis is the principal one. By mm-hmm. episode five, Stannis becomes the figurehead that the Lannisters focus on in terms of their main adversary at this point. And I think for Tyrion, you, know, you see that um, also he gets rid of uh, the the commander of the Night's Watch. Uh, not the commander of the Night's Watch. He gets rid of the commander oh, yeah, of the yeah. gold cloaks, is yes. what I'm trying to say. Yes. Um, Sir when he sent Sir Janis, who's a horrible man yes. as well, I'm glad to see him go go, go to the wall. And way. then you see he gets brawn in, um, and, has, and he's got Lord Varys <laughs> on his side. Um, he send, even sends Littlefinger away, who you know, is probably a good thing, in, <laughs> yeah. uh, because Littlefinger <laughs> is equally unscrupulous individual. And... And you can see how all of the the pawns being put in the right places and it's putting Tyrion into this really powerful position. But the trouble is, was she labelled, maybe this position would be more suitable to honourable men. Well, look what happened to Ned Stark. And that's exactly what Tyrion says to Lord Varys in their first encounter we see in season two. The fact that, you know, I'm not Ned Stark, I'm not an honourable man, and so I will stop you if you try and intimidate me in any way and i think that from that point onwards we can see talking about shifts in tony we can also see a shift in the personality of the hand of the king and we can see why tyrion becomes to be so successful really and may well have stayed on longer had he not had to deal with this uh traitor as it were um yeah. from from or well, based on joffrey's command <laughs> but anyhow what do you make of uh of of the hand of the king and tyrion being this uh, so called well, not necessarily unscrupulous, but certainly not an honorable individual.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it it's it's interesting. You 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 mentioned uh, you mentioned, you know, the way he deals with the small council, and I think that's really what sets him apart from Ned is that he surrounds himself with people he thinks he can trust. You know, he puts Braun in as uh, head of the head of the city watch, which is just hilarious. I, I just think that you know, you you look at Braun and you look at you know, who had been head of the city watch before and you realize oh it, you know there's just such a such a stark difference huh? stark uh such a great difference between the two of them and and it, i just found that that sort of that concept kind of hilarious um but you know he like you said he sends away little finger he locks up pysel the only one he seems to trust is Varys, which is interesting because nobody else seems to trust varus um but we we know from various conversations with ned last season that there there is a certain level of of you know he actually cares in ways that that the others don't. I mean, you you can tell Pycelle is is after power, or at least he's he's after helping helping the queen. We know that Littlefinger is just after accumulating as much power as he can, um, and and you know that other guy was um, Ser Serjanus, He you know he would he's betrayed two uh, two hands of the kings before, so you don't really wanna, don't want to don't don't really want him around. And so you see, um, Cersei's kind of support groups almost crumbling around her. And again, that sort of, I think adds to the fact that she realizes that her power is sort of, is dying out there. Um, and Tyrion's is growing because he surrounds himself with people that he can work with. And you look at what Ned did. I mean, sure he had Robert, but other than that, uh, you know, when Ned showed up at the small council, he clearly didn't trust any of them. Well, maybe Renly, but he didn't really trust. He didn't trust Picell, not Littlefinger, not Varus. It, it was, you know, there's just such a such a difference between the two, and I think it's the way Tyrion was able to surround himself with like minded people who were after a similar goal, or would at least listen to him um, in a way that Ned never could. Uh, but let's let's talk about Stannis. Let's talk about another one of the potential kings of Westeros. Um, Stannis is, is is very interesting in, in these episodes. You know, we had heard about him. You know, being this cold, uh, cold w- warrior. This commander and really he, he lives up to that reputation in these episodes He was uh very well portrayed by the actor who, whose name I, I don't have in front of me and i apologize dylan steven Delan yeah did a fantastic job <laughs> playing him i mean that really you know that sort of cold-hearted uh war commander uh he just pulled off fantastically but we also see him almost like forming this religious cult with with the red woman and and the Lord of Light and, and all that stuff. But at the same time, he's also willing to listen to Sir Davos and, and not trust her. And I'm curious what that says about Stannis, that he both is willing to trust Melisandre with, you know, killing Renly, but he's not willing to trust her enough to bring her into the battle of, of Blackwater Bay.
0: I think it's because... Really, Sir Davos is his most trusted advisor, his most trusted fighter, mm-hmm. and he will listen to what Sir Davos has to say. When you know, Sir Davos himself enunciated and said, "Well, sometimes loyal friends have to speak harsh truths," and that's exactly what he does in that scene in that tent when he tells Stannis Baratheon that, "Bring in a, if you bring a Red Woman to King's Landing, it will be her victory, not yours." Yeah. And I think that it does ring true in Stannis' head. He doesn't completely um, adore her or devote himself to Mm -hmm. her the same way that we see he does, really, from season three onwards. I think you can see that uh, he's really under a spell and he just can't depart from that. Um, Whereas in this season, he's still, as you said, he's this warrior. And I think Stephen Delane, as I watched in the Blu-ray uh, commentary on the profile of Stannis Baratheon, he said that he thought he, he was this warrior who was puritanical and severe, felt that the world should be just. Justice was a crucial part to his ambition and goal. Yeah. You know, the fact that he won't cede or or concede any of his power or territories or titles to Renly Rob, Joffrey says, you know, Renly Rob. Joffrey, they're all usurpers in his mind. All of them are traitors to the crown. They'll either bend the knee or I'll destroy them. Simple as that. And he won't take no for an answer. And I think that really sums up his character, his, his personality, the fact that he believes in justice and righteousness. And I think that really fits in nicely to the religion that is promulgated by this red woman here, the Lord of Light, the night, of, the night is dark and full of terrors, and <laughs> you can see how that, they're really declaring similar ideas of justice here and the fact that, you know, it, it really is, it's a similar way that in history kings justified their rule based on the fact that they were consecrated by God, the fact that they had this divine right, this divine power. And I think for Stannis, that again feeds into this justice element, the fact that he has this divine right to rule and that the Lord of Light is backing him. And and you could argue, from his perspective, it succeeded. It ended up yeah. destroying one of these so-called claimants, the usurper, uh, Renly Baratheon. And so you can see through his mind, there's some vindication there to what he's talking about. Yeah. But what did you make of Stannis Baratheon and, and his claim to the throne, as well as the relationships, I would say, between uh, Melisandre and Ser
1: Davos? Yeah, well, I think Stannis, in some ways, is kind of a, a crueler version of Ned, you know, he's, he's kind of saying a lot of the same things that Ned did just without the, uh, the religious or cultish aspects of, of the Lord of light. And so, you know, he's still, he's still going on about, you know, this is how it should be. This is what should be right. You know, justice, all these are, these are all things that, that Ned was, was into it. But, um, Stannis is a lot crueler and he's a lot more, uh willing to do what it takes uh at least militarily than uh than ned was and so as a result you kind of get this this guy who's willing to do whatever it takes and i would also say he's a lot more power hungry than than ned and i think you kind of see the baratheon family the the brothers there 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 was no there was no love between any of them they they did not seem to get along i think robert said that as much uh, as uh, said that said as much in a in last season, and so clearly, uh, both Renly and Stannis um, didn't like Robert. The fact that Robert was on on the throne, they probably were both jealous of the fact that Robert was on the throne. And as a result, you can see that they're both so desperate to sort of claim it, and sort of maybe maybe they think they they will be the one to to save the Baratheon name, and to you know show the people this is what a true Baratheon king is like, not the drunken oaf you had for who knows how long, and. And as a result, you know, he's willing to do whatever it takes, even if that means, you know, submitting himself and his people to this to to, to Melisandre and, and, you know, taking advantage of her dark magics basically to to do what it takes. But at the same time, he's still power hungry enough that he's willing to listen to Sir Davos and who says, you know, look, you don't want to uh, you don't want the people you want the people to rally behind you, not behind her, which I think is actually pretty sound advice. You know, I I think that Ser Davos was was on the right page there, and and that if if they had have brought Melisandre to King's Landing and they had have won the battle, then it would have been her her victory, and the people would have would have supported her more than they would have supported him, and that probably would have really gotten to Stannis kind of the same way that that Joffrey's power kind of gets to Cersei, and and so he is in that sort of precarious position of he wants to use everything at his disposal to get what he wants to get his power but he doesn't he's also afraid of losing it you know it's it's like it's like in star wars when you know, all those who gain power are afraid to lose it and we i think that's kind of what we're seeing here with with stannis
0: exactly and i think that's a, that's a
1: crucial point you raised there dominic and it's important to
0: emphasize i think that in season 2 Stannis is really using the Red Woman and her magics as a tool, as an instrument, to accumulate more power. But I think that by season three, we see that it's really the Lord of Light and Melisandre that has ultimately consumed Stannis. And you could argue that they become far more... Uh, potent, yeah. and far more powerful than Stannis, as they're really swaying his every thought, and he just becomes a pawn to, to the Lord of Light's will, to Melisandre's will. And I think that's the difference, the fact that in season you know, by episode five, he's still willing to listen to Sir Davos, and he says, you raise a very good point there, Sir Davos, I won't bring this woman with me, I want it to be my victory, not hers. By as I said from season three onwards, that's when you see this change in persona, and I think yeah, you're right. He is really this extreme version of Ned Stark. The the way that he perceives the world, the way that he views it as being based upon the this right, really this um, this divine right that he is the true heir and he should inherit that throne because it has been written so. Um, yep. Whereas others. Say such as Renly, which we'll come on to very shortly, state that I'll want I will be king. I should be king because I will do a good job. Yeah, um, re- which doesn't necessarily fit into this time context.
1: Yeah, which which is interesting. I mean, you mentioned Renly there that he he thinks you know he should be king because he will do a good job. He's really the only person saying that, which is also, is also a, a very sort of modern or, or contemporary for us uh, idea. I mean, you know, we don't we don't look at politicians in our world and say well this person is decreed that they should be king or they should be president and that shall be we should all vote for them you know we we try generally to um elect the person who is best suited for the position of power and in this world i mean renley's really the only one i mean joffrey believes it's his birthright um rob i guess kind of kind of does but he's not interested in ruling the entire Seven kingdoms. He's just kind of wants what's best for his small portion of, or, well, you know, I guess the north isn't really a small portion, but for his portion of the kingdoms. And, but Stannis and Joffrey and even Daenerys, they're all saying, look, I, this is my birthright. I should be the one on the throne. And, and it's, it's interesting in that sense. And, you know, to, to look at this world that they are so focused on, on, you know, who is next in line for the throne, they're less focused on who is actually the best suited best suited for the throne. And someone like Varys seems to be one of the few people um in any sort of position of power who is actually thinking about that and we see that in the way that he is kind of sorta of, we think supporting Danny. And and you know that's something we'll get into in, in season five, I'm sure. But it's interesting to look at this world that way. Uh but let's let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about Theon and uh and his decision to betray Robb Stark and Theon's Theon's an interesting character you know he has this this backstory of being the being Ned Stark's ward basically and you know he's constantly being called Ned Stark's prisoner and then he kind of builds himself up in his mind that well when he'll go home everything will be will be good again he will be ruled he will or he will be loved he will be able to rule and then he actually goes home and he has this really kind of Kind of the opposite of what he was expecting. You know, he shows up on the docks and people. Are, he's like, you know, I, I'm so powerful. And people are like, who are you? And uh, then <laughs> you know, he he has that bizarre um, uh, horse ride with his sister, and then he comes face to face with Balon Greyjoy, and really, you know, he gets chastised for for everything that he has done, and he had been hoping to to help Rob, and you you really. As much as you may not like Theon, this is kind of one of those tragic scenes of, of the show where you kind of look at a character differently because you know we had just seen him be among the first to to bend the knee, quote unquote, to to Rob Stark at the end of season one um, as you know King in the North, and then all of a sudden he goes home and he realizes that he his life is not what he thought it was, and he he makes the decision to betray his. Best friend, basically, his, he says is his brother, and so I'm I'm curious on, on your take on on Theon and and this whole homecoming that he has.
0: I still struggle to like this guy. Oh. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I think that I know you talk about the sympathetic element, and you know, from an audience standpoint, I can understand and comprehend that interpretation because. You know he goes he goes back home and he is caught in this dilemma between whether he should side with Rob Stark or he should side with his house, mm-hmm. his so-called you know true family. It kind of it actually kind of
1: kind of goes back to what we were saying there uh, a second ago of of you know people believing more in bloodlines and and right to rule than you know what's best for the for the realm and you know you see Theon he shows up there thinking I'm going to do what's best for the realm and help. Rob, you know, get get my father to side with Rob, and as soon as he shows up, he gets caught up in all this sort of bloodline stuff again, and and he makes the decision to betray Rob, and you know we see him struggle with that decision a little bit, but uh, he ultimately makes it. And just to just to say, I you know you say struggle to to like Theon, and, and you know I, I totally see where you are coming from. You know he's he's not one of one of my favorite characters either, but in the same way that you can kind of feel some some sympathy for Cersei. Um, without necessarily liking her uh, um, i feel i kind of feel that same that same sympathy for, for theon in these scenes although it's quickly uh replaced by oh my god theon no don't no <laughs> why so uh i still i again i think it's just my, my sure. like my
0: perspective of theon i mean uh, i again i completely understand your view and i I I could, I could agree with the fact that there are similarities and parallels between him and Cersei but I think they're just so more potent and tangible in Theon that yeah. I just I just can't seem to admire him in any way whatsoever <laughs> and again yeah. when we later come on to what happens in season 3 I still have very little sympathy for him and I I will I will justify <laughs> myself here I think that when he arrives on uh, at the Iron islands in episode two you can already see that he's he's this womanizer but just yep. this, this, this sheer arrogance that he walks off of that platform and immediately feels that i'm going to be recognized here he says don't you know, he <laughs> don't said, you know well, who guess i am who's on this cargo i've got i've got you know this uh i've got this fish i've got money i've got uh, other trade, trading commodities, but I've also got the yeah, to the Iron Islands and then, he, and then the guy looks at him like, you know, who's this guy? And then he's like, well, it's me, obviously. And I'm just, <laughs> it's just that, that persona of Theon. And yeah. Then, you know, when he walks in there and he he really gets, as you said, he gets ridiculed and lectured by his father and uh, he, because his father's suspicious of Theon and rightly so really because Theon's, as you said, he's been the steward to the, to the House of Stark for, goodness knows how many years um 15 years or so and he, he you know bailon's suspicious of this because it's, it's really showcasing to him that beyond giving handing this letter or this uh, treaty, um which is trying which is trying to formulate this alliance with rob stark so the alliance between the greyjoys and and uh, and the starks and you know, to Balon on it's, it's questioning where Theon's loyalties really lie, yeah. and you can see that it's quite symbolic by Episode Four when he is visibly baptised. Yep. He becomes, <laughs> you know, he, he 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 genuinely has transformed from the steward of the Stark household to uh, to part of the bloodline, really, of the Greyjoy's. He made his decision there. Yeah. He switched loyalties from the Starks. To the to the gray joys. but even then, in episode five, he's out there ordering and commanding these so-called uh, Iron Islanders, and saying, "We're going here. We're doing this." <laughs> that. And I just, you know, I, I think that he's. As I said, he's arrogant, he's a womanizer, and he's easily manipulated. Mi- manipulated, and that's not to say he's not had a tragic upbringing. I'm not going to deny that to him in the sense that you know he has been brought up by the Starks; they're not his true home, and he's never really felt completely in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a part of their family. Really, um, but like then when he, the, when he uh... returns home, he just expects everything yeah. will be coming to him, and he, and I, that's the part that's the quality of him that I don't necessarily. Adhere to, or I, I, I endear to, really, um, and I, and I do, I mean, but again, but ba- the Greyjoys are just a strange family in general. Like yeah. my, inter- <laughs> my perception of them, I mean, do I, I wouldn't say I'm endeared to them, but then I can understand their perspective, and you know, I, when Balon Greyjoy says, you know, I don't plant the fields, I don't sow the seed, yeah. I take what is mine, and I pay the iron price. This is it. He wants to take the lands for him. He won't pledge fealty or homage to this so-called king in the north. He senses an opportunity, and he's going to go out there and get it. Um, although I would say the one person I do really like in the family is Yara, and yeah. <laughs> um, I think that the qualities she has are really what I would like to see Fion be because she's clearly strong-willed. Um, she's she's capable, but she's you know she's capable in her abilities. The fact that I feel that. Uh, she she really is this uh, wise, this powerful general um, and someone who really understands what they're doing and has a right to feel that she is the true heir to the Iron Island. She's lived under the Greyjoys her whole life and you, know, you, you see in that line or you hear in that line in episode five. Uh, when Theon can't even control one ship, she says, well, I've got 30 ships here, and <laughs> if I told her not I would stay here for years on end, then they would stay on their ships and not move a muscle or something. And, yeah. and she, But she's got that. She's re- earned that respect. She merits that yeah. from the achievements and accomplishments in the battlefield. And Theon hasn't got that, and I feel that's another reason why I feel this arrogance is unfounded. Where has it come from? When clearly, just because he is the son, and as we talk about bloodlines here, he is the so-called blood relative to Bailon Greyjoy. Why should he just become king? And yeah. it's the same way I'm endeared to Renly. The same way I'm endeared to Rob. So that was a long rant about Theon. No, Greyjoy. no, I, I had to get that out of my sister, <laughs> but I do. I've been I,
1: holding I, it back I, for for two episodes. So <laughs> exactly, it's all just come out in the open now. It's all
0: surfaced. but yeah. I'll, I'll ask you your opinion now, Dominic, on on Theon Greyjoy, and well, well but not just Theon. I guess the the Greyjoys in general, that the interaction between him and his family.
1: Well, yeah, you, you mentioned a couple of interesting things. You know, we go back to the the bloodlines issue again. Of you know, Theon grew up surrounded by the Starks, and and the Starks did really love to talk about bloodlines. You know, you know with Ned and, and and his honor and and all that. And then he then you know he heard all about. Robert and the, the merging of the houses. And he's grown up seeing, you know, Rob basically be treated as, as, you know, you know, some kind of, you know, almost like a rock star because he was, you know, next in line to be uh warden of Winterfell and uh, warden of the North, Lord of Lord of Winterfell. That's what it is. And, uh, and so he, you almost expect that he, you almost see that he kind of expected that when he went home because he was so indoctrinated with this idea of, of honor and family. And that's ultimately, I think what makes him turn against Rob is that he he buys into the bloodline thing Um because he's seen how it's worked and how it's been successful for Rob. And he thinks he can probably do the same thing. He just doesn't realize that, that Balon and and, and Yara don't feel the same way about him. They, they see him as, as weak, you know, they're, they're mocking him for paying the gold price, not the iron price. And it is, a, a, a you know, we see how that plays out with Theon and, yeah, he's he's not really a very sympathetic character because, he, like you mentioned, all of the you know the his horrible horrible traits, uh, you know, womanizing, being so uh, overconfident with, when really he's done nothing, and you know he you almost see that he growing up with the Starks he didn't really learn any humility, and uh, you kind of get the sense that most of the Starks or at least the Stark men with Rob and and John to a certain extent, I think they have a certain level of of humility or at least. They're able to learn it quickly, at least John was at the wall. And Theon doesn't really have that capability. And as a result, you know, he, like we said, he buys into the bloodlines thing and betrays his friend, thinking that he can, you know, gain more power because of who he's related to instead of who he was friends with. And you can bet that had Theon, you know, made it stuck with Rob and they had won the war. Things probably would have turned out pretty good for Theon. Things would have been things would have been great, but instead he creates this other enemy that Rob has to fight. This other thing that you know he goes and he burns Winterfell, and you know making Catelyn think that her sons are killed, which ultimately I believe is what pushes her to release the Kingslayer. And and you know he really creates this situation where where Rob is all of a sudden gone from being in this position where it seems like he's going to succeed to where he's going to. Uh, ultimately fail, and yeah, not a sympathetic character most of the time. I, I think that first sort of return when he's being shamed by Balon, I think in that that one scene you get a little bit of of sympathy, but it it, it dissipates pretty quickly. And, and he's a he's a despicable character, and and you know I I do feel a little bit more sympathy for him when he's being tortured in season three, though I I will admit um, anybody being tortured usually gets my sympathy, uh, at least in in, in TV and movies and and whatnot.
0: Yeah, okay. I'm not going to say I condone that, but I I also feel that, I mean, when we later come on to his story in season four and you see that he becomes really enslaved to uh, Ramsay Snow, I don't don't want to bear witness to a redemption story. I don't know if I'm Mm. ready for Theon to... To do that, yeah, I feel there's more punishment that should be in the right. works. But yeah, then and when that's we see just him my and... perspective, because I just feel that we talk. Well, we I think in particular it's the events of the next five episodes that really just pushed me over the edge towards disliking his character. And, and as you said, there are so many traits and dimensions to his character that just are not, I, 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 I just not sympathetic, or at least some some of them just. I, I I can't comprehend really, and I and I feel that there's no way I could ever really. Become in tune to his character because of what he does in these next five episodes, but also from what we've already seen, he's betrayed. You know, in this instance, it's not explicitly stated, but he has betrayed Rob. Mm-hmm. He switched sides. Yeah. he switched sides with the Balons, and he's prepared to sack Winterfell. Mm-hmm. I mean, he alludes to it as much in episode five before we see the events, and um, I think that's just the, the, he's been. He's although he's not lived a perfect life. They were supposed to be his family. Yeah, and he's ended up betraying. Yeah, I think that's something that I can't forgive personally.
1: Oh yeah, no, I I, I totally see where you're coming from. Absolutely, it it is. Uh, you know, he is a, a an evil person. <laughs> you know, he's not a not a good good guy, and um, you know, he does kind of you know everything that happens to him. He does basically bring on himself in this decision to betray Rob. Uh, you, you, you know, he and, and you know. I wouldn't mind seeing a redemption story for Theon, but it would be kind of hard to uh, to accept it um, because you know Rob is dead. You know his his actions in a in a not necessarily direct but in an indirect way, I, I think, did contribute to what happened there at the at the Red Wedding with just putting Rob in the situation where he wasn't uh, as able to succeed as he was before, and and I think. Some of that. I think I think it was a
0: crucial factor. Not not as much as the relationship he had with Talisa, but sure. really it also um, spelled a, a greater ambitions or um, disloyalty from the Boltons. Yes, uh, because ultimately, as the Boltons had captured Fionn Greyjoy and and they want to use him as leverage for the Greyjoys. Yeah. So as you said, pretty much everything really just felt was beginning to sort of fall apart for Robin when we look at it in hindsight. At the time, we didn't know it, but I think when we look back, uh, a lot of Fionn's actions, have, as you said, contributed to Robert's eventual demise.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, let, let's talk about uh, – let's get into a couple of Starks here before we, before we uh, move across the narrow sea. Um, let's, I want to talk a little bit about Arya because she has a, a very interesting scene in, in these episodes. You know, we, we see her, you know, being her, her usual self and, you know, we see this interesting relationship that she has with, with Gendry. But then there's that scene where she can't sleep and she's haunted by the, the images of, of Ned and, and, uh, and Sansa and, and Joffrey and, and the queen all standing up there, uh, right before Ned is, has his head chopped off. And and we know that Arya is becomes sort of this this brutal killer later on, and and she's sort of on her way to becoming more of that. Uh, or well, maybe she's not necessarily a brutal killer in season four, but she's a lot more. She's not more of a brutal character than we see her sort of on her way to becoming sort of a brutal character, a brutal killer. And I'm curious what you think this scene may have to uh, may have to do, like to contribute contribute to her her psyche. You know, it's it's one of those scenes where. We don't really get to see uh, really much of what Arya is thinking most of the time. And in this one scene we we see – we get that sort of glimpse into her mind and, and what she's going through in a way that we really hadn't before.
0: Yeah. Now, again, Arya is certainly one of the most popular characters in this series, and I think with good reason. Yeah, she has to go undercover now as a result of Joffrey's despicable and, and nefarious actions by executing Ned and really ostracising the Starks.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and, she, and and it's good to see that her storyline, although it's again filled with more tragedy, as as Yoren. The, the member of the Night's Watch yes. who was supposedly looking after her and watching out for her, no pun intended <laughs> um, and eventually met his downfall as well and you could see that there was a the close connection between Euron and Arya particularly in that stable scene uh, and it really does inspire and, and has, has great influence on, on Arya's psyche as you said there, particularly the story where he talks about Willhelm and mm-hmm. the fact that he can't even remember his brother anymore but he can when uh, he's telling the story of how his brother was killed he can't remember his brother but he can remember the killer and his name was willem and then eventually when he did find him he murdered him and uh in the most you know, horrific ways mm-hmm. manageable you know they couldn't even get the axe out of his head <laughs> when they buried him um and you know part and parcel of that was the fact that every night he just you know whispered his name whispered his name um, and it's something that Arya later does in yeah. the next episode when at Harrenhal when she lists the names of everyone who was on that who was on that stage there you know you had Sir Ilan you had the hounds Joffrey Cersei and all of those just to remind her that vengeance really is her over, overriding ambition here and she is becoming this fierce and strong-willed character uh, but it's good to see that she's also forging friendships, particularly with Gendry. I think her yeah. and Gendry have a lot more in common than would first appear. And the p- fact that both of them are on the run, namely, mm-hmm. um, and they're being persecuted by the crown. Uh, you know, if either one of them is found, Sansa's more fortunate, you could argue, in the sense that she won't be killed, she'll be held hostage, but Gendry's going to die yeah, because uh, he's one of Robert's bastard sons. And you can see that already that's one of the main... Uh, main elements that you can find, which can be linked into their storyline, something that they can bond over with, uh, which sounds quite, <laughs> not, you know, not the most uh, optimistic thing yeah. to want to bond over, right. but, you know, it is. It's, and, it's, and, and it's this close connection that begins to really ferment between those two characters, which is ultimately something that the, the audience has to be uh, glad for because of what has already had to go through. But again, you know, you, we talk about the situation of, uh, of when we talk about Sansa and how she's been tormented by Joffrey, and uh, we look at uh, how you know Fionn has supposedly been treated bad, treated badly by the Starks, and all this rubbish. Um, but we look at Arya's situation—you know, captured by the Lannisters, put in that hut, that den, um, and pretty much one by one each day, just going to be killed uh, yeah. for really, that they're asking about the the brotherhood, but it's because the cells are too full, so they just need to get rid of prisoners. Yeah. And it's uh, how ironic, therefore, that it's actually the head of the Lannister household that uh, (laughs) saves Arya's skin and Gendry's skin as well. Yeah. He is. He ends up being the saviour. And and then we get on to the rest of season two, really, with the the mixture of the storylines between her and Tywin and, and her and Yucca. Yuck Hagan. Yeah. so I'm not going to go into that too much. Yet, yeah, but uh, we'll really... I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on Arya's storyline, um, you know, with Yoren and, and and Gendry and Hot Pie and whoever the other guy was, um, but also her beginnings with Yuck and Hagar, that that relationship that's beginning to blossom.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, we'll, we'll really we'll get into you know Arya and Tywin a lot next week because i think there's a lot of interesting things there but uh, that scene that we were talking about the uh the scene with her and and the, the the guy from the night's watch that scene uh with her where she's awake and she and she's sort of haunted by the imagery of, of what she saw it, you really get the sense that of how impactful that scene was on her even more so than 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 maybe even sansa although we'll we'll see what with with where season five goes with with Sansa and what happens uh, with with her, but with with Arya, it's sort of like that scene there sort of begins her dri- driving this uh, this this driving nature of her hers to go after and and kill people. You know, it sort of sets her off on this path of of becoming the killer. And it's it's interesting that you have, you kind of think that almost in order to become the perfect killer, she has to kind of almost get over that moment. But it's that moment that's driving her to become a killer, and that's what I thought was was really interesting about that scene because you you get this look inside her that you don't usually get of sort of this vulnerable character, and you know she never comes across as vulnerable really after that you know there's a couple of couple of moments there with with tywin in the, in the next half, but you know you look at where she is in season three and four uh, she doesn't look vulnerable at all; she really is um quite ruthless and and so to have this one moment to sort of kind of understand where she's coming from was a was a very uh, interesting scene and and then and then yeah i'm looking you know looking ahead you know it's interesting it'll be interesting or will it's interesting to look at her relationship with taiwan and we'll really get into that next week um but i do want to talk a bit about what's going on beyond the wall uh in the north within with the night's watch and We see them, they go and they visit this wildling, Craster, um, who is really a, he's kind of the, kind of the Joffrey of the wildlings. You know, (laughs) he's, he's pretty cruel and, and he's, he's this guy who's married all of his daughters and we see that he's sacrificing his sons essentially to the white walkers. So what does it say about the, the night's watch that they're willing to deal with this, with this guy? Are they just that desperate or are they maybe beginning to you know we kind of we talk on on our other show the clone war strikes back a lot about the jedi losing their their honor and their their mor- moral stance are we getting a bit of that with the Nights watch or did the Nights watch never really have too much of that to begin with
0: we could argue that they spout that they have honor they they talk about it but yeah. ultimately it is still made up of criminals and mouthy essence, lawbreakers and of course, they may well be prepared to forge alliances with people who one would consider as being quite cruel and, and, and as you said, unhonorable, unprincipled. And that's exactly what they've done here. I mean, in fairness, Lord Commander Mormon seems to be one of those characters who we talk about Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon and an extreme version of Stannis, this idea of honor. But even he in these episodes can be shown, it can be exhibited that he's kind of lost that in, yeah. and his dealings were crashed at the fact that they're prepared really to let him get away of pretty much anything yeah. uh, you know they, they're bestowing him wine and food then they're, they're allowing him to sleep with his daughters who make more daughters and no one's allowed <laughs> to sleep with them but obviously that's part of the night, night sports yeah. coach but, but he says they're not even allowed to look at them or talk to them yeah. and you know you can see that there's just something really uh, Malfiescent and, and, and unscrupulous about this relationship, really, uh, between the Night's Watch and Cresta. But what I want to know is, what is it about Cresta? Why him in particular? Why has he not been, I don't know, killed, for example? Um, why? Because he's wildling. Yeah. You say he's a wildling. What is it about that relationship? Uh, that he's, I mean, clearly he's offering information. That's yeah. the main thing That's, that we that... can gather. But, surely there'd be other ways to do that. And would you really want to trust a guy like Craster? Because I sure wouldn't, you know, no. in terms of what he's giving. And to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if he's holding back yeah. a lot of what, of, what he, <laughs> of what he could actually divulge when he talks about Mance Rayder and the Wildling Army. I'd rather go with the Cora Halfhand, you know. I think he'd be more... Uh, <laughs> well, I, I do like Halfhand, I to <laughs> yeah. say. But I think he'd be more of an, uh, a trustworthy individual than this guy.
1: Yeah. That- but, yeah it's a, the whole
0: situation there, it's all quite... Uh, extraordinary to watch from our perspective. I mean, for our contemporary modern standards, it's it's quite appalling the fact that he's really got these ladies all in yeah. surfed, and the knights' watch aren't even really allowed to. You know, if they're lucky enough, they're allowed to sleep in the stables, but like, John was not allowed to because he looked at his door or said something wrong. Yeah, uh, looked at them the wrong way, and <laughs> you know, that, and his punishment was he had to sleep out in the snow for the whole night, which you know, was seemingly. Unjust response, I would say, on uh, on 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 Kraster's part, and then we later see that he's got, even got dealings with the White Walkers. I mean, yeah. that's uh, that scene at the end there where he donates that baby to their cause is just yeah. uh, again quite uh, quite a visually. Uh, compelling and, and, and stimulating scene really that we can see as these dealings here. it's a very creepy scene. I have to say, but it works very effectively. I'd be interested though, to hear your thoughts on, on Craster and, and the Knights watch dealings with him. I mean, yeah. well, why do you think that they are having to deal? Why not? Why are they dealing with him? Is it, is it just the information standing?
1: Yeah. I, I think what the thing about Craster um that separates him from the other wildlings that we meet is that he can be bought is that you know, he, they can offer him wine and he will tell them at least something. And you don't really get that sense about anybody else. You, I don't think Mance Raider would, would ever, sell information to them. You I don't think Igret would ever sell information to him. I don't think any of the other wildlings that we, 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 that we meet would sell them any kind of information. But Krasta is willing to, to, you know, divulge some of this information. And as a result, I think the Night's Watch view him as a necessary evil. And you can tell that, that Lord Commander Mormont is is scared. I mean, he says as much in the season one finale that he's, he's frightened by what's going on beyond the wall. And so maybe they're a little bit more willing to deal with him now than they would be before. But we know that they have dealt with him before, that various uh, members of the Night's Watch have gone and, and seen him. And so he is kind of in this he's, – he's kind of, I think, to the Night's Watch, this necessary evil that if they want to know what's going on beyond the wall, if they want to know what the wildlings are up to. Then they're going to have to pay off Crastus to, uh, to get what they, get what they need. And as a result, they are willing to look the other way when he's sacrificing his children to the White Walkers, which is just horrific. You know, it's, it's up there with some of the creepier things that Joffrey has done. Um, and it's, it's really a, a, an interesting, uh, interesting relationship because clearly neither side really likes the other side, but they both like the, uh, the, the things that the other side can give them. And as a result, they're willing to kind of work together briefly. And, uh, you know, it it is kind of a, one of those, another one of those moments of where you kind of look at the night's watch and go, okay, okay. I mean, I, I see why you're doing this, but is this really the best way? And well, in, in this situation, it, it, it may, may very well be the, the only way for them to, you know, gain information because, you know, we do know that horrible things are going on beyond the wall, not only with the with the king, the king beyond the wall rising up, but, you know, White Walkers and, and the return of giants and, and and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's yeah, it's a necessary evil, I think, is how the Night's Watch views Craster. Uh, uh, before we wrap up, let's talk a little bit about uh, what goes on with Daenerys in these episodes where she she visits the. The, the city of karth the greatest city uh, that ever was or, or will be um and you know she's really i think this this episode these episodes have two kind of key moments for her in her rise to becoming sort of this 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 leader this this queen you know there's first there's the whole deal with um you know just getting into karth uh where you know she's the episodes begin you know she's kind of again gone from the highest of highs of you know giving birth essentially to these dragons to being a nobody again you know she has this sort of small horde of dothraki that are following her but they're kind of trapped out in the middle of the desert and they're dying off their horses are dying off and things really aren't looking good and she's able to sort of uh you know find a way out of this with with help um and then when she goes into Karth. Again, to use another Star Wars reference, she, she turns down the the quick and easy path, which would have been to to marry the the guy who who uh, invoked Sumai to to get her in because he you know he promised her ships and armies if she married him, and you know we see that she she wants to do this. You know she's tempted by this this offer, and she she turns it down, and she ultimately chooses to to listen to to Jorah to do things the right way. And it's in this scene again that we kind of get to see that you know she is maybe the. Uh, the best choice for for ruler of the of the Seven Kingdoms. So, uh, what was your take on on Danny's story in these episodes?
0: Yeah, I mean, it certainly took a steady and slow start from mm. what we'd seen yeah. in pre- <laughs> in the last season, where it seemed a lot was happening. You know, remember the first episode of season one? It started off at the uh, at Pentos. And then suddenly by the end of the episode, you know, Pentos with her brother in bathing in this hot tub. And then by the end of the episode, she was married and there was a whole ceremony. <laughs> Whereas in these yeah. you know, first five episodes, we see, and Danny's really in a contrasting place to the end of season one, you mm-hmm. could argue. where we see her at the end of season one, she's uh, she's burned Khal Drogo and got rid of that witch. But you know, she stands up and there's dragons and there's just this dramatic sequence there where we can really see that She's almost power personified there. The fact that when she stands up, everyone kneels down yeah. and they can't believe what they've seen. But then we get back to the realities of the situation in, in season two, when they're in this red waste, these desperate and impoverished conditions, really. And it's yeah. really contrasting. Um, and, you know, there's no lack like of food provisions, water um, and horses are dying. Her white you know, white stallion, which she named her child as well, funnily enough, was also <laughs> Killed in this one, Um one of her most loyal Dothraki underlings, if you want to call him that, was also uh, murdered as, as she as she dispatched these three Dothraki males to go and find some shelter, or just find anywhere, just find anything, and then he returns back with a severed head, yeah. and you know, suddenly, although we're talking about the situation there as you said, a bit like with Rob Stark actually when he's proclaimed king of the north and suddenly it's all seeming quite rosy everything's looking very optimistic and hopeful and it's all just crumbles around her in that beginning because she's lost her you know she lost her horse lost her main support she's got no food no water no army And she's lost her husband. What's she going to do? And suddenly she's saved, really, by a calf, which is quite a mysterious and enigmatic place. And it's certainly not... None of those individuals on that council would certainly get in my good books or at least trustworthy books, because all of them there have their own political agenda and it's, it's... it's almost a microcosm of King's Landing, really, isn't it? Yeah. The way that that whole political system works. And I think that was really fascinating to see that even though, you know, this guy, uh, one of the 13, uh, Zakos, I think his name was, when he, you know, he, he, he cuts his hand open and, and puts a blood pledge into uh, permitting uh, Danny to enter the city. But he wants something as well. He has other desires at hand here and uh, in this episode, we see he talks about marrying her, but we see that there's a bigger game here uh, yeah. at play, and it's really fascinating to see that. And how you know now we see the Kalasar she's in uh, in calf, but in some ways, you could argue that her, her situation is, is is more perilous than it was in the Red Waste, in the sense that <laughs> everyone around her is looking to take a look and, and, and really wants to, to take a look at her dragons, and once they do see her dragons, then. There's going to be that lust there, that, that that desire, that crave to take them, to to seize them and have them for themselves. What yeah. do you make of the eastern and, and Danny's you know start of a of a new journey, as it were, from away from the Dothraki horde and into Car.
1: Yeah, you you mentioned that it's kind of a new journey because she has you know really gone on this whole kind of uh, this, this whole journey of of going from you know, the the powerless pawn at the beginning of season one to, you know, being the Khaleesi and being all powerful and then losing basically all that power all through season one. And so we see we find her in season two kind of in a almost uh, a weird, weirdly similar place to where she was in season one, with like one key difference is that she seems to be in control now. She is so, at least somewhat in control of her own destiny in a way that she never was in season one. And that's, you know, really a result of her time with Drogo and her time in season one and everything she learned from that. And so we see her beginning this new journey with this sort of new sense of, of power. And, you know, that's for- reinforced by her dragons, but, you know, there is also these, these Dothraki are still following her, whereas, Many of the other ones uh, had left before they had ever even seen the dragons, and so as a result, we see her. You know, she has a loyal following of people who 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 love her, or love her as a ruler, and uh, as a result, she's sort of able to find a way out of the situation. And um, you know, she uses some of the uh, some of the newfound confidence that she she gained from being with Drogo to get into Karth. Um, you know, she gets the guy to to. To you know, do the blood oath and let and let her in, and so it is sort of this beginning stage in a in a new journey, and you know she approaches things things very differently than Viserys ever did. Um, where she uh, before, uh, you know, he tried to buy an army. He went after the Dothraki, whereas she is offered the chance to buy an army. But she instead chooses to build one up herself, and uh, that's at the uh, suggestion of of Sir Jorah. And ultimately, that was the right decision to make. It seems because, well, we know what happens to to those guys in Karth in To you know, that guy he really had no money, so he couldn't have helped her. It was all a facade. So, yeah, that that's sort of my take on on uh, on her beginnings of this this new adventure. And you know, she even gets those Dothraki that are thinking about pillaging the city to to kind of listen to her, which was. Which was interesting to see that she's now able to even, you know, control this this horde of, you know, quote-unquote savages that we saw in in season one, which we never thought we would see from her. So is there anything else you want to bring up about these episodes or shall we jump into quotes? Uh, The
0: only last thing I really want to bring up upon is uh, we've touched upon a a little bit and that is Renly Baratheon. I don't think we've necessarily discussed in too much detail what's, what's really gone on with him and obviously we see him as a recurring character in season one didn't have a necessarily prominent role but he is one of the claimants to the throne and he is assassinated by this uh, ghost this silhouette really of Stannis Baratheon so uh, maybe just a brief roundup of, from your standing of, of Renly's storyline and, and how that's really interlinked with the Tyrells.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, what,
0: what did you make of uh, what we witnessed in these five episodes yeah. dealing with Renly and the Tyrells?
1: Renly was and Cat it... Stark. Yes, yeah. Course. yeah Renly was interesting because you know, like we kind of talked about, he was the guy who sort of said, "I would be a good king. I should be king." He wasn't necessarily following the bloodlines, and you get the sense that the Tyrells. They are after power. They they know they can't uh, really take power without you know marrying Marjorie off to somebody uh, somebody like Renly or Joffrey or Tomlin, um, and so they you know because of Loras's relationship with Renly, they decide to side with with Renly, and and that was you know I think a, an important aspect of his of his reign, I guess you can say, and ultimately you know although he would have been the right king or or the good king he was killed off and he didn't get that chance and we see that the Tyrells they weren't really loyal to him maybe Loras was but they weren't really because they go and they side with the Lannisters so Ranley was was kind of you know as much as he thought he was the one person that wasn't being manipulated um he was still kind of being manipulated by the Tyrells he was just a, a tool for them to to gain more power in a way that that they that they continue to strive for in the in the later seasons um, but what, what was your take on on Renly
0: yeah I'm a big fan of Renly to be yeah. honest He's, he is one of my favorite characters in the series and well at least in the first two seasons I should say <laughs> I think that <laughs>
1: yeah
0: uh, again his, his death was quite interesting because it it was striking but it's it was very surprising that the particularly the timing and placement of it, because we've seen at the end of season four, uh, I think it was the Garden of Bones That episode was called, when uh, Melisandre gives birth to that strange black shadowy figure. And then straight into season, uh, uh, episode episode five of season two, (laughs) not quite on season five yet, straight into that next episode, uh, we see the negotiation between Robert Baratheon, Catelyn Stark, and it's all looking very hopeful, isn't it? He says, I'll agree to forge an alliance, Rob can have Dominion of the North. I'll have Dominion of the South, um, and then we can end this war within a fortnight. And then suddenly, click of the fingers, all of that is just just collapses, isn't it? Or everything? It's like the the shutters have come down suddenly. Once Renly's gone, it really does twist and just change a lot of where this storyline was going to go. Particularly in the War of the Five Kings, who has the most power? and who ultimately is going to emerge victorious in this. Renly's death is a crucial factor in determining that fact. fact. And as we see in episode 10, the Tyrells then side with the Lannisters instead of siding with Stannis. And one of the main reasons they decided to side with the Lannisters is because they perceived that, rightly so, Stannis was the one one individual who caused and was the reason for Renly's death. Um, and I, I have to say also I did love that striking scene on the fields between Stannis and Renly, their yeah. standoff as it were um, and the jibes that they had between each other because you can really see those different personas and personalities come to the forefront and in that scene certainly I became more endeared to the idea of Renly becoming king. Um, you know but in hindsight it's quite tragic when we know that Renly's going to die in the next episode yeah. <laughs> you almost think to yourself if only Renly and Stannis at that scene if they just sided together none of this would have happened and Kat was right weren't she when she said you know if you were my two sons I would you know put yourselves in a room and get you to sort out your problems I mean you, what you're talking about fighting and killing each other and um, as you said I think a lot of that was driven by the fact that they were jealous of Robert's power Robert Brafian's power, and for thinking that he's just this drunken imbecile and that they can do a better job um, yeah. which is a lot of what spawns out of what Renly's discussing but yeah that's, that's Renly Baratheon for me any any last bits for you to add or I think yeah. should we round up now I,
1: I think we, can, uh, we should uh, move on to quotes and uh, pick some favourite quotes, are, are you ready or uh, shall, I, shall I go first this week
0: I will I will allow you to go first this time Dominic <laughs> Okay.
1: well I, a lot of my quotes all come from the same episode um, but there's, the, um, there's a couple of really good scenes with with Tyrion and and the various people that he's he's talking to. Um, one of one of my favorite scenes uh, or one of my favorite lines is actually a Cersei line. And when she talks, when she's talking to to Tyrion, and she's threatening him, and she says, "You think the piece of paper that father gave you will keep you safe? Ned Stark had a piece of paper too." And I just thought that was such a chilling line and such a really you see how how far she's willing to go, how cruel she can be. Um, in order to protect what she what she loves, and I, I thought that was a very, very, uh, very cool line and very chilling line. Uh, but how about you? Do you have a have a? Are you ready, or shall I go again?
0: <laughs> uh, I am. I am indeed ready. Excellent. I'm going to go with uh, one from episode two, actually, rather than episode one. And it's uh, that scene between Balon and Theon Greyjoy, in particular, I, the moment when Balon is uh, dressing down Theon, and he says, "I will not have my son dressed as a whore." It's like, <laughs> yes, you tell that guy what needs to be said because <laughs> he deserves it. So yeah, that's one of my favourite ones. Yeah. What about you yourself, Dominic? I'll throw it back to you.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm not really going by episodes. I'm just uh, just picking out some of the some ones that uh, that I like. So uh, another, again, from from that same episode, it's actually a Catelyn quote. Um, when she's talking to uh, to, uh, to the to the Baratheon boys, and she says that these are the nights of of summer, and winter is coming, and I, I thought that was a a very uh, you know it was sort of a twist on on Ned's famous line, and you sort of get that sense of you know although it is associated with the Stark household, there is truth to the saying that you know winter is coming, and that's something they've been talking about for several seasons, as, as you know winter is on the way, and you know the dangers that come with it. Ah, uh, but how about you? Do you have another one?
0: Yeah, this is my final one, and it's linked on to Lancel Lannister and and Tyrion. I think some of their exchanges were hilarious. Yes, I, I mean, notably that one in Episode Five when he he kicks him out of his little uh, <laughs> his little uh, carriage, as it were, and tell and tells Braun if he tell tell Braun Lancel that if any ha- any harm comes to me, then Bronn will kill you, or you have my permission to kill me or something. And it's, yeah. uh, he says that to Bronn that makes me laugh. But the yeah. best one is in that scene with him and uh, in, in Tyrion's chambers. And he says to, um, you know, Lancel has disclosed the fact that he's slept with Cersei, and uh, he says, Lord Tywin, uh, 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 tell me to do whatever he bid, whatever she bid in any of it, uh, any of her matters. And he says, yeah, well, did he tell you to fuck her? And that just was another great one there. Um, yeah. And then also when he says, you know, um, well, tell it to Joffrey, then he loves to have a good grovel. And, uh, <laughs> that just made me laugh there when uh, Lancel was trying to justify his actions. Yeah, but I'll throw it over to you. Any remaining quotes that you have, Dominic?
1: Well, there's one more as from, it's uh, from Varys when when uh, Tyrion is, is putting into his, putting into effect his little plot to see who the who the traitor is on the small council um and he says you know the queen mustn't know and, and Varys says oh I, I love conversations that begin this way um which is just speaks so 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 much about Varys, Varys's character in the way that he is he is the spider all right well that is going to wrap things up for this week uh and thank everybody so much for listening. But before we before we officially wrap up, let's—I'll throw it over to Kieran for our final thoughts on these episodes.
0: Final thoughts. Fantastic opening to season five. Well, season two. I keep saying season five. giving <laughs> not for season five, Dominic. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. No. Uh, great opening to season two, I should say. But uh, yeah. I've already. Got- midway through that season now as we've gone through these five episodes and I just love the different storylines that are beginning to surface now beginning to emerge in particular I am fascinated by the Greyjoy position although I'm not a great fan of Theon Greyjoy I do think that their storyline is very very compelling um, in a similar way that we've now been introduced to Stannis Baratheon, the Tyrells are playing a more prominent role now, mm-hmm. and it's really becoming—it's really gearing up to this big, cra- crucial fight, which is soon to take place between Stannis Baratheon and the Lannisters, which I am really much looking forward to seeing. And as you said, I liked the way you talked about the different themes that have been raised in this. In this particular episodes we had the political intrigue at King's Landing between Joffrey Tyrion and Cersei we've also got that introduction of magics really Craster talks about it in in Night's Watch uh with the Night's Watch when he talks about giants have returned we've got the dragons are now returning and everyone's looking at that red star aren't they in the sky that (laughs) red comet and saying well this is signifying this this is signifying that and it's Osh that says that signifies the return of dragons and she is got that nailed on and so yeah very much looking forward to the second half of season two which again gears up for this climactic duel between the Lannisters and the and the Baratheons but over to you Dominic Final thoughts on these episodes.
1: Yeah, these were some great episodes. We really get into a lot of the character building. A lot of we really get to see characters uh, reacting to. The, well, of course, we get to see characters reacting to these situations that they're placed in. But we really learn a lot from that. We see Tyrion uh, really thriving in his role as Hand of the King, and we see Cersei sort of dealing with the fact that she doesn't have power. And then you contrast that with how she goes about it, and with and with how Danny goes about it and you really see the differences between their two characters and i thought that was really fascinating um also of course uh really you know we start to see some of the uh some of the issues with the night's watch and everything that's going on beyond the wall and of course uh your favorite we we really get into theon's story and and how he uh and and how he became ultimately really sets himself on his own path to becoming reek in season four All right. So that will do it for this week. Thank you everybody so much for listening. We'll be back next week. As we mentioned, talking about episodes six through 10 of season two. Uh, as Kieran mentioned, we'll get into the battle of the Blackwater Bay and everything that comes with that. And those are going to be some great episodes. So be sure you, be sure to tune in next week when we get into those. In the meantime, Kieran, why don't you tell the people what is going, what is coming up on expression FM this week?
0: Absolutely. And last week was mad with Guild Elections Week. This week has calmed down a little bit. Well, there is a big event on Wednesday linked onto the sports team, which is the Rugby Varsity, the Exeter University Varsity. And it was, it's going to be a grand event which features Exeter University students against reserves in the Exeter Chiefs rugby team, who are quite a big team in the Aviva rugby premiership here. Nice. And it's going to be a very, very interesting spectacle. I'm hoping to get down there for that tomorrow. And, yes, I'm very much looking forward to that. And our regular shows are on Saturday, 11 a.m. till 2 p.m. GMT time. That's Expressions Saturday Sports Show. And we talk about everything, ranging from football to cricket, rugby... And so much more. So please do tune into that. And we have got a Tuesday night sport next week. Next week, which is from seven eight o'clock, sorry eight pm till ten pm GMT time. So five hours difference if you're in North America, um, it's <laughs> around three pm ish, where we look at Champions League, and that's going to be absolutely fascinating. Is my team Arsenal take place? And I'm hoping to see them emerge victorious in their nice. two way tie against Monaco. And I also do want to mention uh, in terms of the Guild elections week last week. It's actually now uh, extra broke a record as, as being the highest proportion of students at university to vote on a national wide scale. Nice. So um, it managed to beat Loughborough. So um, I think it was about forty-two percent of students who are attending extra university voted, which isn't a lot, but it's uh, it's still not too bad turnout for uh, a seemingly you know, student election. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was uh, a great. Great week all round, I would say. Yeah, but I don't Don, have... <laughs> I think there's something that you will probably want to disclose to the listeners yeah. regarding the Star Wars podcast. Yeah,
1: well, yeah, I just have to say that is impressive as you got so many people to vote. I don't think my school got anywhere near that number of people to vote. Um, but yeah, I also want to let everybody know about uh, what's coming up coming up on the Star Wars Underworld podcast this week. Last week we talked about the great episode of the of the of uh, Star Wars Rebels Call to Action, which uh, reintroduced. Tarkin to the Star Wars Galaxy and uh, this week we'll be uh, breaking down all the news or non-news from New York Toy Fair and, and everything that really well really was wasn't announced uh, there was a lot of episode 7 placeholders in place and uh, we also have a very cool guest guest lined up so you'll definitely want to check that out it's recorded live Thursday nights 9 p.m. Eastern on channel 1138.com and then released on iTunes and Star Wars the following Friday Um, We also want to remind you about our other show, The Clone Wars Strikes Back, which is kind of like this show, but we're talking about the Emmy award winning animated series, Star Wars, The Clone Wars. Uh, We do have an episode that we've recorded that we are kind of sitting on right now because we had hoped to have a a special guest uh, interview in it. And uh, the guest had to back out at the last moment uh, due to illness. And so we're uh, hoping to reschedule and we'll release that episode in due course. Uh, so, uh, between shows here, be sure to like us on Facebook. Just search for, for Watchers of Westeros on Facebook. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Watcher Westeros. You can follow me personally at DominicJ25. You can follow Kieran at um, and 6 uh, And also, if you want to let us know your thoughts on the show, be sure to... Uh, You can send us an email, watchersofwesteros at gmail.com. Also, uh, please keep your iTunes reviews coming in. We love them. We love the especially the five-star ones. Uh, So you can subscribe to the show to never miss an episode on iTunes. And while you're there, why not leave a review, preferably a five-star one, as I said. So thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week. Uh, So for the Watchers of Westeros, I'm Dominic. And I'm Kieran. And I'm Kieran. (laughs) And remember... The night is dark and full of terrors.